Our first scripture this morning comes from Psalm 145. Hear God's word, even today, for you and for me. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And the Lord's compassion is over all that God has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of the Lord's words and gracious in all deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Amen. Like the text Katie just read from Psalm 145, the text from Romans this morning uh, is from the lectionary. The lectionary is a set, uh, a three-year cycle set of scriptures that come before the church. Um, If you've been around for a while, you know that I am partial to sermon series where I pick the scriptures that fit the series. When you do the lectionary, the scripture picks you. And that's what's happened today from Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25a. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. I do not understand my own actions, says Paul, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, this word afresh to us this day so that we be challenged and changed, that we be different people than those who ventured into this sacred space, those who tuned in remotely, that you would use this word to make us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, even now in this moment. We pray in his name. Amen. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. 
I do not do the thing that I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I suspect that this conflict that Paul articulates in Romans 7 is not unfamiliar to you. It's certainly not unfamiliar to me. It's a conflict between the wills wanting to do good and what we actually wind up doing. The will's desire to do good and what we wind up actually doing. Last Sunday while on vacation, Katie and I worshiped at the Black Mountain Presbyterian Church in Black Mountain, North Carolina, uh, just down the hill from the gates of Montreat. Uh, as part of the worship service that morning, uh, there was the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of uh, communion. And after the pastors offered uh, the words of institution, they invited the congregation uh, to come forward. Uh, like good Presbyterians, Katie and I were sitting in the very front, uh, and we uh, exited our pews, we came forward, we received uh, the elements, and then returned to our our pews, and I, I said a little prayer. I closed my eyes, I said a little prayer, and then I opened my eyes, and because we were sitting at the front, we could see the saints of this congregation come forward for a communion. And one particular couple caught my eye. They were in their late 80s, perhaps even their early 90s. Uh, the woman walked with a cane, and her husband didn't so much walk as sort of shuffle down the center aisle. He steadied himself with one of her hands and with the other he reached out, holding pew by pew by pew as he passed. And I watched them come forward uh, for communion and, and they got to the table and instead of staying in single file and, and receiving the elements one by one, they, they stood shoulder to shoulder like it was their wedding day. And they received the elements together. Then they turned slowly and came down the side aisle right where we were sitting. And the man met my eyes and he just smiled this great smile of joy. And without thinking about it, it was instinctual. I just reached out my hand and grabbed Katie's hand and I held it tight. And as I contemplated what I had just watched, this desire that already existed in me began to bubble up and come to the fore. It was intense. I had this desire that I want to be that couple one day, right? Like four decades from now. <laughs> I want to come down a center aisle with Katie, shuffling my feet, her walking with pace, and come to the front and, and receive communion together. I had this like deep desire and the awareness of this deep desire. That's what I want. That's the kind of love. That's the kind of life. That's the kind of relationship I want. Well, it only took 90 minutes. Only 90 minutes after that experience, Katie was trying to share something important with me. And as it often happens, I was not paying attention. She called me on it, which I didn't like. And so I said something sharp and mean-spirited that hurt her. 
I want to have a long and fulfilling marriage to Katie, and yet sometimes my actions are out of sync with what it is I want. As I said, I suspect the conflict Paul describes is not unfamiliar to you in your own life, in your relationships, in your inner life, how you show up in the world. As I said, it's not unfamiliar to me. For the desire to do the good lies close at hand, but not the ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Well, today, most lay and scholarly interpretations of Romans 7 take what I would call a realistic view of what Paul is trying to say here. And what I mean by realistic view is that these interpretations will draw parallels uh, to what we observe in ourselves and in others, that we are conflicted, that we still sin, It's something Paul observed in himself. There's a battle that rages within us, a struggle between what we desire when it comes to doing the good and what we wind up actually doing. We see that not just in Paul, we see that in ourselves. And so these commentators begin to interpret this text in a way that that gives room and gives space to the reality and to the truth that just because you're in Christ, just because you follow the way of Christ, just because you are a friend of God doesn't mean that you don't have this conflict. It doesn't mean that you you don't have this lack of integrity between what you want and what you actually do. Even when one is in Christ, we would say, we don't become perfect and free from sin. Now, there are some Christian traditions, and they're often categorized as holiness Tradition. Some of you may have heard that phrase before. That believe when you come into a relationship with Christ, you actually no longer sin. I know someone who actually holds this theological point of view. They grew up in a Presbyterian church. And when they visit their home church, which happens to be from time to time, not often, but sometimes they attend their home church, they refuse to stand and recite the prayer of confession because they don't think they need to. They they literally believe that once you become a Christian, you no longer sin, which is super convenient, right? Because every action I do is justified because I am in Christ. The holiness tradition will say in its most extreme forms, you don't need to confess. You already confessed once. You don't need to do it Again, because you no longer are in sin. You are in Christ. As you may have already assumed, that is not the perspective of our community. Uh, We have a perspective that seeks to move away from what we might call spiritual perfectionism and move toward something called sanctification. And I want to talk a little bit about this fancy theological word word, sanctification for just a moment. Sanctification is the God-initiated work through the Holy Spirit working in our lives, a work that we are one, open to, and two, we actually participate in. It's God's work, but we participate in that work. 
So we're open to it and we participate in that work. And that work, God working in our lives, seeks to form us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. If you're here often, you hear me pray before uh, sermons that, that the word would form us to be more and more like Christ. That's part of the sanctification process. Each and every day, God working in our lives, a work that we're open to, a work that we participate in, where God is forming us to be more and more like Christ. One of my favorite biblical analogies of sanctification comes from the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. It's a story that I, I'm sure many of you have heard before. It's a story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Nod your head if you've heard this story. He gets word that, that his friend Lazarus has died, and he doesn't show up to Lazarus' hometown, Bethany, until four days after he has died. And after this theologically rich and pastorally deep conversation he has with Mary and Martha, the sisters of this dead man, he asks them to take him to Lazarus' tomb. And this is how the writer John describes what happened next. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead four days. This isn't in John, this is my interpretation. She's like, hey, we just had lunch. We're sitting shiva. We've eaten a lot. We do not want this tomb to be opened. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they rolled away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And then Jesus had to say to them, unbind him and let him go. There are humorous aspects of part of, within the New Testament rather, and I think one of the funniest uh, scenarios and scenes in the New Testament happens right here in this text as Jesus has to instruct Lazarus' friends and family to unbind him. Now just imagine this scenario, okay? Jesus calls Lazarus from the dead and he's wrapped head to toe in burial linen. So we have no idea, John doesn't tell us, we have no idea how he got out. Did he hop out? Did he kind of roll out? We have no idea how it happened, but we do know that when he gets out, the people are so gobsmacked, the people are so elated, they're beside themselves, the hits just keep coming with this Jesus guy, that they do not unwrap Lazarus. Jesus has to tell them to unwrap him and let him go. I think this story helps us understand the heart of sanctification. So our justification, right, as Christians, it comes from what God accomplished in Christ through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection liberate us from death. His life, death, death, and resurrection give us a new way of being human in this world. 
His life, death, and resurrection reconciles us eternally to God. Our sanctification comes through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, as I said, a work that we're open to and a work that we participate in. A work that seeks to strip away the burial clothes of our lives. That's sanctification. It's a work by God that seeks to strip away the burial clothes of our lives. Clothes that do not belong to our current state of being. Clothes that we should no longer wear. Clothes that bind us and keep us from moving freely into the life Christ has called us to embrace. All of us right now can imagine in our mind's eye what those clothes look like for us. To some extent, all of us are wearing burial clothes. All of us are wearing a dead person's clothes that don't belong to the current state of the spirit that we find ourselves in. So sanctification is the work God does in helping us shed those burial clothes. So I wanna take that story and I now wanna bring back Romans 7 and put them together and, and analogize it like this. The resurrected Lazarus's burial clothes represent what Paul often calls the work of the flesh, the work of the flesh. Now it is super, super important for all of us to be aware that Paul has a very discreet and distinct word when he's talking about flesh and when he's talking about body. Okay, so when he's talking about flesh, he's not talking about our body. He's talking about something different, something amorphous, something non-physical. The, the flesh for Paul represents uh, the headquarters of our sinful life. The, the flesh is, is where our sinful inclinations and sinful desires reside. And we know that there's a distinction here because Paul uses two different Greek words. The word sark is the word for flesh. The word soma is the word for body. And when Paul writes about the flesh in his text, it's not the word for body. It's something altogether different. Paul sort of invents this concept to, to explain where the seat of sin lives in the human being. This is important because Christians over the years have read this text in, incorrectly and have positioned our view of the body in a negative way. But the body is a gift from God. We believe in the resurrection of the body. In fact, Paul says in Corinthians that it is, uh, that the church rather, is the body of Christ. Our vocational identity is wrapped up in this notion of the physical body, which is good. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not talking about the body. He's talking about this amorphous, non-physical part of us called the flesh. And Paul has a very negative view throughout all his writings when it comes to the flesh. And he sees this, you'll read this in throughout his writings, you see this tension between what he calls the spirit and the flesh. Remember Galatians, some of you know this text, in Galatians, and the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. He, he juxtaposes the works of the flesh with the works of the spirit, and sanctification is suppressing the work of the flesh and is elevating the work of the spirit. That's what Paul believes God is doing right now in your life and in my life, that God is working. Now, the other thing we need to be clear of is that Paul 
does not believe that this is his work. He doesn't believe that it's his work. He believes that it's God's work. Maybe an analogy would help. God is like the chef and Paul is like the sous chef. It's the chef's meal. It's the chef's work. It's the chef's creativity. The sous chef, though, is participating in that work. And that's what Paul suggests here, is that this is a a work of Christ, working in your life when you're in Christ. He's working in your life to strip away those burial clothes. How do we know this? Paul says it at the very end of this lament and this cry that he offers in Romans 7. He says, who will rescue me? Did you catch that? Who's going to do it? And then he says, with expediency and pace, thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's Christ that's working in him. So as we near the finish line of of this sermon, I'd like to offer one uh, takeaway that sort of has two points, but one takeaway that uh, perhaps will be something we can hang our hat on. I, I know when you talk about these sort of theological doctrines or these theological concepts, we're like, oh, that was interesting, but how does it actually work itself out in my life or work itself out in the world? So here's what I hope to do. I hope to give us some shoes that we can walk this sermon into the world, okay? And this is how I want to do it. I want us to be open to the possibility that God may use someone else to be the sous chef in your life. That it's not just you and God working this out, but perhaps God is bringing into your life people like that great crowd when Lazarus was raised from the dead that will help strip away the burial linens. That you would be open in your spiritual life to people who are the sous chef who participate with you in the work of God to free you from those dead man's clothes. What is more, I also want us to be open to the possibility that God may use you in someone's life to be the sous chef. That God may use you and your gifts and your passions to help strip away the linens in someone else's life. I know someone uh, who regularly worships here at First Pres, and after every time this person worships, they go to an AA meeting. They go to worship, and then they go to an AA meeting, and they would tell you that, that both the church community and their AA community are part of the sanctification process, stripping away the burial linens of addiction each and every week. I know that in our church, and I look out and I see so many of you already participating in these ministries, but there's small groups and Bible studies, Stephen ministry, that provide space here in our context where vulnerability and hospitality and welcome and honesty and grace are the order of the day. There are communities within our community that help pull the burial clothes off of one another, where vulnerability and truth-telling exists. I know people who recognize the sanctification process in their relationship with a spiritual director or a pastor or a, a, a Christian mentor or a family member who they allow a glimpse into the dark parts of life 
They, they allow them to see the burial clothes and they tell the truth about themselves and God uses them, that other person, to help strip away those burial linens. Here's the big idea. Part of our sanctification may come through God working through people in your life who love you and who want the very best for you and who want you to grow in faith, hope, and love. It's hard to let people see our burial linens. It's hard to come from the darkness to the light and be vulnerable and tell the truth about where we are in our lives, to be like Paul and say, the thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do is the thing that I do. But I believe that when it comes to the Christian faith, everyone needs someone, at least one person, that they can identify that can be a part of what God is doing in making you and me more and more into the likeness of Christ. So who is that person for you? Who are those people for you that you can invite into your life, that you can tell the truth, that you can be honest, that help you shed the burial clothes? Finally, let's stay open to the fact that God may be calling you and me into someone else's life to do that very thing. Don't believe that you don't have the gifts for it. Don't think that, you, that you're not equipped for it. If God calls you to do something, God will give you everything you need to accomplish that thing. And it, it is quite possible that there's someone in your life right now who's experiencing this conflict, who is struggling, who's in the dark, that God's calling you to be part of their sanctification process. They're calling you to be the sous chef, to help them rid themselves of the burial clothes. Sanctification isn't just an ivory tower thought experiment. Sanctification is real life, real community, real faith. So be open to what God is doing in your life and stripping away the burial clothes. Be open to the people who might come into your life that help you in that process. And be open to the possibility that you yourself may be called to be that sous chef for someone else's spiritual meal, that God may use you to help shed the burial clothes. Amen.